You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I was quite the reader in high school, and I thought since I'm a reader, then I should probably read something by Ernest Hemingway. After all, he's one of the the great American novelists. I figured that sounds like something smart people would read. And so I chose his book, The Sun Also Rises, and it ended up boring me to death, to be honest. I found out I wasn't much of a novel reader, but there's one famous line in that book that maybe you've heard of. There's one point when one character, Bill, asks another character, Mike, how did you go bankrupt? And Mike responds by saying two ways, gradually, then suddenly. His bankruptcy came gradually, and then suddenly. And that famous line came to my mind when considering Abraham's story this week. In a way, Abraham's story happens gradually and then suddenly. Over the last five chapters, we've seen snapshots of his journey of faith, and most of those chapters are separated by several years, sometimes even by over a decade in between these chapters. And it seems to progress very slowly, very gradually. But then all of a sudden, things begin to happen. And that's the case once we get to chapter 17 through 21. There's a flurry of activity. God's promise of a son to Abraham is happening gradually, then suddenly. And maybe you've experienced the same thing in your own life in terms of God working in your life, where it often seems to happen gradually, Then suddenly, maybe you prayed a long time for a child, and then next thing you know, you have a child. Or maybe you're hoping or looking for a potential husband or wife for a long time, and no one ever seemed to be the right person, but then suddenly, God drops them in your life, and next thing you know, you're married. It happens gradually, then suddenly. And that's the feeling we get in Abraham's story at this point. It happens suddenly. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1 to set the scene for this chapter. Genesis 18, verse 1 says this, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. And rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So this is the second chapter in a row that we've seen the Lord appear to Abraham. And the way this chapter starts seems to indicate that this is soon after the events of chapter 17. And this passage is a little confusing because it says the Lord appeared to Abraham. And remember when you see the word Lord in all caps, it is it means that the The covenant name of God, Yahweh, is being used there. So this really is God. The Lord appears to him. But then it says three men were standing in front of Abraham. 
there's been much debate, debate over the years as to the nature of these three men. Sometimes they speak in unison, it seems like. Sometimes it's just one of them speaking. Some people say that these three men are actually the Trinity, that this is a manifestation of all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while that would be a pretty cool occurrence, I don't believe that's the correct understanding here, mainly because later in the chapter, two of the men depart for Sodom, and in the next chapter, it calls them angels. But the third person remains, and that person is identified as the Lord. So I believe it's best understood that two of these men are angels of the Lord, and then one of them is the Lord himself which would make this a theophany. I'm not sure if I've mentioned that word yet, but a theophany is simply a visible manifestation of God to mankind, which happens sometimes in the Old Testament. God is appearing to Abraham in a way that he can see. And the events of these verses also seem to indicate that these three men are not merely men. For one, it makes it seem like they suddenly appear. Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent in the middle of the day. This is kind of a, a desert region, so probably not a whole lot of, of cover to obstruct your view, but suddenly they're there. He's sitting at his tent, and when you read tent, don't imagine some small camping tent you just pop up and put together. This would have been more like a Bedouin-type tent. Those tents could be as big as a house and were often made of goat or camel skins, stretched tight over these poles, forming a roof and walls. And the desert climate in parts of Israel and the Middle East like that could, could be absolutely brutal with temperatures soaring well over 100. But because of the thickness of these skins and the animal hair on them, uh, the sun's rays would have been soaked up. And, and so in these tents, it could be as, as cooler, 30 to 40 degrees cooler in one of these tents from the outside heat. And so that's likely what Abraham is sitting at when suddenly these three men appear. Now, hospitality was and still is greatly valued in the Middle Eastern world. And so many of these things Abraham does could just be him being a good host. But I think his actions also indicate more than just normal hospitality. Remember, Abraham is 99 years old and has become extremely wealthy at this point. He is almost a king in a sense. His household likely would have several thousand workers under him, as we could tell from a few chapters back where he had all these trained men. <coughs> he also had vast amounts of livestock and wealth. So he's both wealthy and elderly, and there would be few people in that area that would be considered his superiors, yet Abraham runs and bows before these men. Elderly, dignified men don't normally run for anybody. And so it, we see this automatic sign that Abraham is viewing these men as his superiors. And he's almost frantic in his attempt to prepare a feast for them. He runs and tells Sarah to start making cakes. He runs and finds the best calf to begin preparing. He also brings curds and milk. Really, this is nothing less than a, a complete feast that is being prepared. And when it's finally set before them, what does Abraham do? He stands back and watches while they eat, which was common then for a host to let his guests eat first. But here it seems Abraham is standing by, really prepared to serve them in whatever way possible. 
He's shown them the greatest hospitality and honor he possibly could. But here's where this story gets really interesting in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? She is in the tent. The Lord said, I'll surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Let's pause there. So the Lord reiterates his promise from chapter 17 that Sarah herself would bear a child to Abraham. We don't know if Abraham had relayed that information to Sarah. Maybe he just kept it to himself uh, rather than telling his nine-year-old wife that she was going to have a baby. Might not have gone over too well. She, she probably wouldn't have believed him to begin with. But this time, Sarah, she's eavesdropping. She's inside the tent. She's being sneaky, listening in on this conversation. <coughs> and when she hears this, she laughs to herself. After all, they're well advanced in years. She's 90, Abraham's about 100. Plus, it says the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. Her body is officially, biologically beyond childbearing years. Even if she had not been barren, there is no possible way for her to become pregnant. She even calls herself worn out. So she's describing herself that way. She is old and worn out. So it's no surprise that she laughs to herself. After all, Abraham had laughed as well when he heard the promise in the last chapter. But there might be something different behind her laugh because Abraham was not rebuked for laughing, but we find Sarah is. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This has to be one of the most awkward exchanges in the whole Bible. Uh, even though Sarah's inside the tent and only laughed to herself, of course, the Lord knows everything. And he essentially responds to Sarah by speaking to Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh? And what does Sarah do? She lies. She denies laughing. Which lying is never a good idea, but lying to the Lord? How far do you think that that's going to actually get you? It's like, it's like asking a little kid if he ate the cupcake he wasn't supposed to eat, and he has blue icing all over his face, and yet says, no, I didn't eat it. Like That's essentially Sarah in this moment. Denying something to God is not going to get you very far. And we find that Abraham and Sarah both seem to have a tendency to lie when they're afraid. Back in chapter 12, when they went to Egypt, Abraham feared for his life, and he lied about Sarah being his wife. And here, Sarah is the one who's afraid. She's been caught red-handed by the Lord, and yet she lies. And it's such a straightforward response by God, no, but you did laugh. I mean, can you imagine how much you just want to shrivel up and die being rebuked that directly by the Lord? And God says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? That's really the reason she's rebuked. It seems that Sarah's laugh is more of a cynical laugh of unbelief. And he calls her on it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
Sarah, do you know who you're dealing with? This is El Shaddai, God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. He formed the universe by the word of his mouth. He breathed life into mankind. He can do all that, and yet you think he is unable to give you a child just because you're getting up there in age. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And in reality, nothing is even hard for the Lord. There's plenty of things that we can do that are hard, whether it's completing a hard physical activity, a hard puzzle, a hard math equation, fixing a hard problem at work, performing a hard surgery. There's plenty of hard things that humans can still manage to do with enough skill and ability. It might take a lot of energy. It might take a lot of effort and leave us exhausted, but we can do hard things. But for God, nothing is even hard. His power is limitless. His wisdom is limitless. Nothing depletes even an an ounce of energy or power or might from him. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And I bet there's some of you in here this morning that need that reminder today that nothing is too hard for the Lord. We serve a limitless God, and our prayers should reflect that as well. Brother Daniel just wrote a great article about that on our church website. I'd encourage you to go check it out when you get a chance. We've updated our website and we'll be posting articles there a couple times a month. And he gives us the reminder that our prayers can be as limitless as our God is limitless. And I have no doubt that many of you in here this morning have a major difficulty or issue in your life right now. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's a chronic pain, a medical condition. Maybe it's financial hardship, crushing pressure at work. Maybe it's relationships that have strained and seem like they'll never change. Or maybe it's dealing with stress and anxiety. Maybe the events of our day have caused you to live in fear. And there could be any number of these situations that you find yourself in, and they probably seem impossible. And you know that there's no earthly amount of power or skill or wisdom or time or money that can fix the issue. That situation is too hard and too difficult for you, but is anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus himself affirms this truth in Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So no matter what situation you find yourself in right now, big or small, don't hesitate to pray big prayers. Pray huge prayers. Ask God to do what's hard for us. Ask God to do what's impossible for us. His word invites us to pray with boldness and confidence and trust. And his word tells us that there is power in prayer. In James 5.13, it says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Then the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Do you believe that the prayer of a righteous person has great power? Do you believe that nothing is too hard for the Lord? 
I want us to stand on that truth today. In fact, at the end of our service this morning, after we partake in the Lord's Supper, I want us to have an extended time of prayer at the end of service today. Myself and and Brother James and Brother Allen will be down front. And if you need prayer for any reason, no matter how big, no matter how small, and you want someone to pray with you, I want you to take part in that time. There's power in prayer, and there is certainly power in Christian brothers and sisters praying together because nothing is too hard for the Lord. That's something that Abraham and Sarah would eventually realize firsthand. So the promise is reiterated to Abraham and Sarah is rebuked. And let's pick back up in verse 16. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. It's kind of like a dark cloud descends over the story just with the mention of the name Sodom. We know already from several places in Genesis how wicked Sodom was. It was one of those cities in the valley so you can imagine Abraham uh, in his tent, in his whole, his whole place being maybe up on a plateau or a ridge overlooking the valley. And, and him and these men are looking out and see Sodom down in the valley. And it seems like God is deciding if he's going to tell Abraham his plans for Sodom. Will he tell him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, of course, God already knows what he's going to do. He has perfect wisdom. He has perfect knowledge. He doesn't have to wonder what to do. The Lord is saying this, and I think Moses recording this more for our sake. Now, God doesn't have to tell Abraham what he's going to do. He's not required to, yet he does. The Lord brings Abraham into his confidence and into his counsel. He shares with him the judgment he's about to bring. You see, God's not interested in hiding this, maybe what we think of as an ugly side from Abraham. He's showing that not only is he a God of blessing, but he's also a God of justice and wrath towards the ungodly. And God's forthrightness and honesty here is in contrast to the line that we've seen from Abraham and Sarah in the past. God is always truthful. And because Abraham is in this covenant relationship with him, He tells him what he's going to do. But there's a problem. Abraham doesn't directly state his main concern, but why might Abraham be distressed that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it's because he has a nephew named Lot. And we know from chapters prior that that Lot is is an inhabitant of Sodom. Abraham and Lot have a very tight familial bond. Uh, We've seen Abraham already go to battle against multiple kings in order to save Lot. I mean, imagine if you had a family member or a dear friend who was living in a city that you knew was going to be 
destroyed. You would be very concerned. You would do whatever you could to make sure that they got out of there. And so Abraham is concerned for his kinsmen. So look at his response in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Some commentators note that Abraham is acting somewhat in the role of a priest here. He draws near to God and he intercedes for the people of Sodom. That's kind of foreshadowing how the priest would later function. The the priest would draw near to God, entering into the holy place and make intercession for the people that God might forgive them of their sins and spare them. And Abraham's initial question is, if there's 50 people that are righteous in the city, you won't wipe away the city, will you? And he doesn't just ask this question, but he also appeals to God's own righteousness and justice. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Shall the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Those are some big statements that Abraham is using. And I think the scripture allows even us to appeal to God's character like this in our prayers. We see similar statements in the Psalms where the psalmist calls upon God to take action and to judge and to act according to his character. And it's not wrong for us to appeal to God's character and righteousness in our prayers and in our intercession. After all, our confidence in prayer is based on who God is. But of course, God will always do what is just. God can do nothing that is unjust. As Deuteronomy 32.4 tells us, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God will always do what is just and what is righteous. And he tells Abraham that if there's 50 righteous people in the city, he'll spare the whole place. But Abraham apparently isn't too confident that there is even 50 righteous people in Sodom. So in the next verses, he petitions the Lord again, and I'll summarize it for us. He actually does it five times, and five times he throws out a number, each time the number getting smaller. He says, well, what if there's 45 righteous people? What if there's only 40? What if there's only 30? What about 20? Or what about 10 righteous people? And even at 10 people, God still says he'll spare the whole city if 10 righteous people are found there. And we'll have to wait till next time to conclude this story in the next chapter. But most of you already know that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed with fire and brimstone. Not even 10 righteous people can be found there. But that doesn't mean Abraham's petition was useless. Though the city will be destroyed, Abraham's nephew Lot and his family are rescued by the two angels. Abraham's intercession leads to the physical salvation of his kinsmen. It's God's grace and mercy mingled with Abraham's intercession on their behalf. And as I consider Abraham's role here, I can't help but think of the role that we might play in interceding for others. 
especially when it comes to interceding for the salvation of others? What kind of role might you play in interceding for those who are on the path to destruction? Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy 2.1. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You can't force someone to be saved. You can't save anyone. But what if God is going to respond to your prayers and bring saving conviction upon someone based on your prayers? What if you have an intercessory role to play in someone's salvation? And I have no doubt that most of you, if not all of us in here, have someone in our life, maybe a parent, a sibling, a friend, a cousin, a coworker, a classmate that you know does not follow God. And if they died today, they would face eternal punishment. Maybe you've even prayed for that person for years. Don't give up. The scripture tells us to intercede for all people because God desires that no one would perish. He desires for all to be saved. Don't give up praying for that person that God would draw them to himself, that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction of their sins, that they would respond in faith and repentance, that they find forgiveness of their sins. You never know how God might use your prayers to work in someone else's heart. And so I want to add that to our time of prayer at the end as well. If, if you know someone that you're desperately interceding for and praying for their salvation, then I want you to take part in that prayer time for them as well because the prayer of a righteous person has great power and nothing is too hard for the Lord. And the truth is that we can pray for all those things because Jesus Christ is alive. Abraham interceded for Lot based on God's character, but we can take it a step further not only can we appeal to God's character, but we can intercede for others because we ourselves have an advocate with the Father. We have the risen Son of God who sits victorious at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so we pray big prayers in the name of Jesus Christ. And we get to celebrate that in just a moment as we observe the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray, would you pray with me?